0: This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe
1: at bne.eu.
0: So Sergey, thanks for joining me. Um, we just were in a session there talking about the outlook for the region and Russia in particular, and it seems that it's uh, this crisis economically, is going to be one of the worst for Russia ever. And it's not so much the contraction that we're expecting, it's the long-term consequences. Because like you said, normally there's a crash, but then you have the opportunists come in, and they buy, and
1: it bounces back, and there's no bounce back this time. There's gonna be no recovery, is that right? This is exactly correct, um, in the sense that um, if you think about the crisis um, in 1998, uh, or 2008-9, or 2014-15, it was clear that there is a shock which will be followed by a recovery because the system would still be the same and market institutions will prevail. But this particular shock is disconnecting Russia from the global economy, which is a permanent shock, and there will be no recovery. Russia now talks about structural transformation, This is the euphemism that Russian government uses to describe the fall of GDP in the second and third quarter. Mm -hmm. Um, This structural transformation will be um, regressive industrialization. Russia will have to produce stuff it didn't produce before using uh, inferior technology.
0: This is actually highlighted particularly this, and she said that companies need to look down, backwards, old technology and adopt them. This is like the first time a government advocated going backwards in time with technology. I mean, doesn't that destroy or further reduce Russia's long-term growth?
1: Potential? Well, it locks in the current destruction. It is uh, something that Russian government has already done, and unless it wants to remove sanctions uh, somehow by changing foreign policy, uh, it will have to face this reality that it's now disconnected from the market, and uh, it needs to do something else. And unfortunately, Russia is not a very advanced country in a technological sense. So it will use more primitive technology, going back in time. And this is this is a disaster, and this is something that uh, is quite unprecedented. You can say that. Iran has done something like this, uh, when Iran uh, went under sanctions, but it was a completely different level of development, completely different level of integration into global economy and actually European economy, which is a very big advanced economy.
0: Russia had low growth, maximum about 2%, well below its potential, but that's because Putin was building this fiscal fortress, getting ready to play this game. However, aren't we now talking about stagnation? are we talking about Latin America in the 70s, that it's going to live on its raw material income and maybe try and build some new trade relations in Africa and Asia, but the long-term potential means that Russia will just fall further and further behind the rest of the world, regardless of what it does.
1: That's exactly true. So if you think about uh, which trade partners Russia needs... Of course, Russia needs to trade with countries which are different from Russia, which uh, import commodities and export technology and equipment. And that is Europe. That is United States. That's the West. Talking about uh, semiconductors, that's Taiwan or Taipei-China, no matter how you call it. Uh, And in that sense, of course, Russia needs cooperation, not with Africa, not with India, but with more advanced countries which are not going to trade with Russia because of this war and the sanctions. So in that sense, it is a tragedy. It is a it got, Well, we shouldn't call this a tragedy given what's going on in Ukraine when people are dying. But in economic terms, in industrialization, development, modernization terms, this is an unprecedented example of how bad um, uh, the geopolitical shock can be
0: big um, question at the moment is the oil and gas embargo. Gas, as you pointed out, as everyone has mentioned, is piped, and so there's very few options of changing that quickly. However, oil is much easier. Um, Nevertheless, the EU proposals is to phase it in six months, eight months, refined products, uh, crude, and then countries that are very dependent, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, Bulgaria, they've been given an exemption for at least a year, but what this means in effect is that the money that Russia earns from those exports is going to continue to flow. So, in terms of shortening the war, Russia will still have the funds for at least a year to pay for it. So these sanctions are long term, and in that sense they're not a diplomatic tool where you impose sanctions in order to get a change and you can use them as as a ticket. This is just punishment. This is just breaking off relationship with Russia,
1: isn't it? Well, um, I think uh, an embargo delayed by half a year means peace delayed by half a year or more. And so the sooner Russia is uh, deprived of resources to continue this war, the better. Um, exemptions for several reasonably small countries will not change uh, the fiscal impact of the embargo. But the problem today is that uh, some of these countries are evidently vetoing the embargo altogether, Mm -hmm. So we still don't have the embargo in place. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Exemptions for a few small buyers is not going to be a game changer, but the full veto on the embargo is a major, major problem. Talking about the longer-term impact, yes, uh, sanctions are supposed to make sure that Mr. Putin doesn't have cash to continue this war and to launch a new war. And that's... uh, Talking about punishment, yes, if deterrence doesn't work, punishment has to come to deter the future war, but also to remove the resources that Mr. Putin wants to use to continue this war and to launch another war. And that is working already, and it will work even more in the future, as Mr. Putin doesn't have uh, high-grade steel from Germany, doesn't have power engines uh, for his jets from France, semiconductors from Taiwan. This is extremely, extremely important for his ability to continue this work.
0: we said that the sanctions are leaky. And Italiano said that oil production is going to go down from 11 million barrels a day to something like 9, 17 percent. That's what they're expecting in the Kremlin. But it means that Russia is going to continue its oil exports. And again, I've said before that um, this sanctions are largely imposed by G7 plus Um, And it's a fight between the West, uh, the developed markets, and Russia. But then Asia, Africa, a lot of those countries are abstaining, and many of them actually rely on Russia. Indonesia is a good example for grain, for oil, and the G20 meeting, the Indonesians refused to uninvite Putin to that session. So with this 9 million barrels a day of exports, I mean, the problem is is that Russia, Inc., continues to be in profit It's not as profitable as it was but as an economy it's still viable it's still making profits or if we reduce the oil and gas exports you know is there a point where it starts to run out of money completely where it goes into deficit isn't it always going to be profitable Uh,
1: no and uh, the numbers you're mentioning are very very important because uh uh So, on one hand, Russian budget was supposed to be balanced at $44 per barrel. But that estimate was based on the projection that Russian economy is recovering from COVID at 3% per year. That was the pre-war estimate for 2022. Once you have a minus 10% GDP change in 2022, which is the mid-range forecast right now, you need a much higher oil price to balance your books and there is no good estimate for this price because it's very hard to to do that, but I myself, I ran some numbers and I talked to a couple more people who independently ran their numbers and we converged to the same number which is 70, 75 dollars per bottle, assuming full volume full pre-war, pre-war volume. You know, $70-$75 per barrel is much lower than the current price. On the other hand, we have a lot of evidence that when developing countries buy Russian oil, they pay a, a much lower price, so we have reports from India paying 70 or 75 dollars per barrel. So Russia is in a delicate situation. It may actually – right now it runs a fiscal surplus, but it may turn into the um, red area already in the second quarter. if. The private boycott by Western companies continues. So if um, 3 million or 3.5 or 4 million of Russian oil and oil products are not bought by European Union and are not bought by anybody else, that already creates a major impact on Russian budget. Russia will have a sizable, sizable fiscal deficit. If we are only talking about two million barrels per day, uh, that is close to deficit, but uh, not really a major deficit. So these are, these are the numbers. We don't have a full uh, grasp of the details, and part of that is because Russia stopped publishing certain data. Mm-hmm. Certain statistics are no longer pu- pu- published. Uh, but it's not like Russia is very happy in fiscal terms. No, Russia's not. And the uh, European oil and gas embargo, which would uh, uh, reduce Russian exports of oil and oil products by three and a half, four million barrels per day, would be a major, major uh, game changer. And then you have to impose sanctions on whoever picks up this oil. So uh, the uh, West will not object about China continuing to buy as much oil as they buy now, but there'll be Uh, potentially secondary sanctions on whoever wants to increase their oil imports from Russia substantially. It's a bit like sanctions on Iran. So we'll see if that works. We'll see if uh, uh, these sanctions can or cannot be circumvented. But uh, once again, we need to choose between peace and air conditioning. We need to make make those choices because because people are getting killed every day and as long as Russia has cash to pay mercenaries, it will continue to be the case. Now, Russia has another constraint, which is military equipment. And so there should be very drastic sanctions on whoever sells military equipment to Russia. But here, the choices are much clearer. So China has military equipment. But to what extent uh, poorer countries have high military technology is a much uh, bigger question. And what
0: about the effect of globalization? I mean- we pointed out before that most of all, the large majority of the oil and gas pipeline infrastructure from the 70s when it was built all points from Russia to Europe, and we have the power of siberia gas pipeline that came on after 2014 to go to China, and the ESPO oil pipeline that also goes to China. But those are the only two, and they're both full. And moreover, the Chinese demand is only 10 billion cubic um, meters versus 155 going to Europe. So, clearly, now Russia needs to reorientate its export structure to Asia, but it's going to take, what, at least five years to build a pipeline infrastructure for that to happen, and that's going to cost a fortune, and in the meantime, Russia's going to be short of money, because the oil sanctions, the gas sanctions, in that five-year period will come into effect, and Russia will lose all that income that it's getting now, and there's, I don't know, I mean, they, they like, presumably, they can do that, and with China what have you. But is that what we're looking at, sort of
1: reorientation? Um, this is what we saw in 2014. You mentioned those pipelines and uh, the uh, financing deal, which we now understand uh, uh, was the case there, was that China financed the construction of the pipeline, uh, getting paid in future uh, revenues. Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly like you said, it's possible to build new pipelines being paid by future export revenues. It's uh, not a profitable project for Russia, but Russia faces uh, very difficult choices, right? So in that sense, I think it's quite likely. As long as this uh, regime is in power, it looks like this regime is not going to become peaceful. That means sanctions are going to be in place, and so it will try to build more pipelines to China. Now, China will be a, a single buyer uh, using its uh, market power and uh, asking for lower and lower prices from Russia. Yeah.
0: And so Russia is doomed to now discount, I mean it's already discounted euros by 30 dollars instead of 2, and it's going to be doomed to sending very cheap gas to China. So China is the big winner in this, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, yes and no.
1: So on one hand, uh, what you've just described is exactly correct, mm-hmm. and that's that's true. Uh, that um, China is paying uh, lower amounts uh, to Russia, and that is, that is, again, Russia becomes an appendage to China to an extent we've not imagined before. So some people would use this metaphor. Think about Donetsk People's Republic. Uh, which is an appendage to Russia, a rock state not recognized by anybody. So now Russia will become a Donetsk uh, People's Republic of China, right? Also, a rock state uh, uh, under an embargo with everybody else can only sell its goods to uh, China and depend on the China financing. So that is, that is the degree of, uh, of the problem. Uh, but on the other hand, I wouldn't say China really is a great winner. Uh, China uh, needs jobs incomes and that comes from peace trade and investment so we talked about euro european recession for example europe will glow- grow slower this year these are jobs destroyed in china Global economy will grow by one percentage point, almost one percentage points uh, less uh, in 2022. China will suffer from that, and in that sense China doesn't need this war. This war goes against Chinese national interest, and whatever China says publicly, of course within China people understand that very well. They will uh, take advantage of the situation, they will do their best to compensate themselves with lower prices um, paid to Russia for Russian oil and gas. But that doesn't mean that they were interested in this war. This is not uh, in China's interest.
0: And what about someone like India, while we're talking about other countries? I mean, again, the relationship between Russia and India is very strong, and they depend on commodities, grain, and oil, and arms, which has always been one of Russia's big geopolitical trade. And India's already taken advantage uh, by doing commodity and oil deals with Russia in the last two months, where it's getting cheap imports, which it needs. I mean, isn't there, you know, outside of the G7 confrontation between Russia and, and uh, the West over Ukraine, a lot of the other countries are being quite pragmatic, even opportunistic here, and they're not really buying into the whole values-based argument. They're just like commerce and we are friends with Russia, so India very publicly sat on the fence in both UN uh, Security Council and the General Assembly. I mean, isn't that what's driving the rest of the world's relationship to Russia?
1: Well, that, uh, help um, that helps Putin, and uh, part of that is also driven by what about ism saying, well, Putin has invaded uh, Ukraine, but uh, America has invaded Iraq. Mm. and. Uh, and uh, you, you see a lot of discussion about that, uh, talking about that the West has done things wrong in the past. Now, nobody can compare the degree of the, nobody can accuse the West of war crimes that we see today in, in Ukraine. But still, um, uh, that is uh, something that uh, many European politicians are saying now, that we need to learn from what the developing world is doing now. To what extent we underperformed, under. Um, uh, to what extent we actually didn't take the high road in many cases previously. For example, given COVID, uh, we undersupplied vaccines to the poorer countries, uh, which really, really undermined the trust of poorer countries in the West. So all of these things uh, create, a, create an opportunity to reflect and rethink how the West, which has become much more united because of this war, can also increase its soft power uh, in the future. But overall, when again talking about India, India is not a winner from the war as well. India needs global economy to grow. And the fact that it's paying a lower price for Russian oil now doesn't mean that India is a beneficiary. Oil prices have gone up because of the war. So everybody would benefit from oil prices at uh, lower levels. And the fact that India wants to pay a lower price is also understandable, given all the challenges Indian government is facing right now. And,
0: of course, as uh, Bianca was saying, that, um, the trouble with this crisis is it comes on the back of the COVID crisis. So a lot of go- uh, governments, countries, particularly here in North Africa, were already uh, strained finances. And now they have to deal with this inflation shock, commodity price shock, and the, the EBRD, the IMF, are suddenly relevant as so much as people are going to have to get help. I mean, how bad is this crisis, this shock, going to be? I mean, we mentioned already global economies are going to slow. And on top of that, we have potentially a very nasty food crisis, particularly here in North Africa.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, countries in North Africa rely on uh, grain imports from Ukraine and Russia. And this is going to be a very difficult year for these countries. And indeed, last time we saw that, uh, resulted in political turbulence, Arab Spring. Uh so but there is enough
0: global grain production. We're still only talking a few percent global production.
1: Absolutely. So it's it's comparable to a bad harvest. Right. It's not comparable to I don't know a, a a global climate shock which we may observe in hundred years. Yeah. Um, so but uh, no it's it's not it's not something that we are going to observe famine. I mean, it just uh, will see increase in um, in debt, uh, again, hopeful increase in development aid you mentioned the BRD should play a greater role. Um, but um, in, in places where government is not capable to address those issues, you may see political turbulence. So for example, in Germany, whenever whatever we talk about the impact of this war on German consumers or I don't know Spanish consumers, increase in electricity prices and so on we don't think about uh, german democracy collapsing it may be a nasty economic shock but we know these countries will use their fiscal capacity and uh, compensate lowest, lowest incomes uh, households but in developing countries sometimes you lack bureaucratic capacity you lack fiscal capacity so it's much harder to address but uh, yes you're right we are not talking about a global famine this is not uh, this is not the issue but the issue is you, you may have uh, a uh, major political uh, crisis coming up because uh, well, it is a big shock
0: and the international community are going to have to come to the rescue i think so very clear and as you say there's much more unity today about dealing with these uh, after effects I-, I wanted to say
1: I- would just i would just i would just say that um, i hope that there is enough bandwidth on this because uh, as you rightly said there is a covid crisis there is a war and uh, some western governments just don't think enough about the impact of this crisis on, uh, on, uh, for example, Middle East and North Africa. The good news is whatever Western policy makers I was talking to, I've been talking to in recent weeks, have been aware and uh, and uh, are thinking how thinking to help. How?
0: Uh, last, I want to spend a couple of minutes on Ukraine. Um, the estimates coming out of Kyiv economic School: 600 billion dollars of damage, uh, Natalie Deresko, the former finance minister, just said maybe a trillion we don't know before the war's going on. Physical damage, at least a 100 billion. So when the war ends, hopefully soon, um, the reconstruction, um, what's going to happen then? I mean, there's talk, I think Borrell said yesterday that we should take the 300 billion of CBR funds that are frozen and use that. Um, the IMF, I think, has set up $170 billion reconstruction funds, and uh, of course the EBRD has already committed $2 billion. Um, how is that going to play out? I've been arguing for years that Ukraine should have a Marshall Plan. But everyone told me that's a stupid idea because all the money will be stolen. But the mood has changed. And I think a lot of money is going to be dropped on, Ukraine, on the order of $100 billion. Um, and surely this is the opportunity to rebuild the country and actually take it beyond where it was before. That They could get everything they need and want to go. And if you're building literally from the ground up, you can plan the the economy in a way that you couldn't when you were just
1: restructuring it. But uh, how is that going to be funded? Right. So um, the Marshall Plan you were talking about uh, in recent years, some European governments uh, would mention the amounts like $5 billion. So it's a completely different game. right? Uh, there is, by the way, a plan for Belarus, which is an official plan adopted by European Commission for Post-Lukashenko Belarus, we are talking about three billion. Yes. So these are very different amounts. Uh, as you rightly said, post-war reconstruction of Ukraine—it's a hundred or hundreds billions of dollars. Do I, I was coming—I was coming up with that. So I'm one of the authors of uh, what's called blueprint for reconstruction of Ukraine, where we have an estimate between 200 and 500 billion dollars, and we think that indeed you will have to use. Russian money. There will be reparations awarded, and of course, uh, Putin's uh, government will say we are not going to pay, and so um, European courts or international courts will just seize Russian assets, which are frozen right now.
0: Is there or if that means the central
1: bank assets. central bank assets? So the other question is oligarchs' money. Uh, this is private money, and I'm not sure to what extent that can be done or not, but. I think uh, there, is a, there is a case for uh, seizing Russian government money. And then as you rightly said, uh, IMF, uh, World Bank, EBRD, U.S. government, multilateral, bilateral donors, that will have to be done. Then your next question is right on target. How to deploy those funds efficiently and how to build bet- back better. And that's exactly where this document should be read uh, because we talk about the special agency. We compare to the Marshall Plan, Marshall Plan was actually uh, implemented in Western European countries, which were less corrupt than uh, uh, many emerging markets today. But still, there was a structure in place to monitor the dispersal of, uh, disbursement of funds. And uh, here the main trade-off, the main challenge is how to assure that Ukraine is the owner of the plan on the other hand, uh, that uh, there, is, uh, uh, there is no leakage due to corruption. And we talk about uh, checks and balances introduced in this system, in this report. So I won't, I won't uh, uh, go through this in, in just a couple of minutes. It's, it's a difficult question, so we'll read the report. But
0: it's, it's possible to
1: do it? Have to. It's unprecedented. Mm. So just to give you another number... So think about the whole of Marshall Plan in post-war Europe in today's dollars. That would be 160 billion dollars. So today's reconstruction of Ukraine, tomorrow's reconstruction of Ukraine, will probably be bigger. Some people would ask, how come? It's just today, uh, societies are much richer. Mm. Today's Ukraine is much richer than uh, Germany or France uh, in 1940s. So So a lot of stuff which has been destroyed is good stuff. And, uh, and, the, and in that sense, it's going to be an unprecedented reconstruction challenge it 's a big country which is literally half destroyed, mm-hmm. and so it has to be done and of course, uh, we can only hope that uh, uh, there will be a major pushback against uh, potential corruption mm-hmm. as uh, people would be stealing money from the country which just defended itself against an, an aggressor.
0: I think. Um- it's a golden opportunity. I mean, Zelensky had authority when he was elected in April, um, three years ago, two years ago. Um, but this time around, he's got absolute authority. The whole country is behind him. And also going into it, there's no need to compromise in so much as before he had to compromise with the elites, the oligarchs, the vested interests. Uh, this time around, they're just building from nothing. So in theory, he's got a blank sheet to do it should have the authority and the support of everyone about rebuilding the country. And in that sense it's like Germany post-war the this so Right. Everyone almost like we put the past behind us, we focus on the future and rebuilding the country to be great. And if we're lucky that will happen. But then it's Ukraine and Ukraine has a long history of screwing things up uh, when they uh, when they don't have to. But I don't know, are you optimistic? No.
1: Uh, well, it's hard to be optimistic about this tragic situation, but I think I, I think you rightly say that um, uh, there seem to be availability of funds and willingness of international community to help. And um, as I said, there are checks and balances, and if there is a roadmap for accession to European Union, that per se will um, uh, chart the reforms. That's very very important. Before the war. Ukrainian government would often say, "We want the roadmap to EU accession, then we'll reform." And many new uh, members, many uh, new EU members, would say, "Look, in 1990s, nobody promised us accession. We just reformed. But once we reformed, they couldn't say no to us, and we joined EU." Today it looks like there is a growing willingness to provide a trajectory for Ukraine to join the EU. With that trajectory, there is a very clear roadmap what needs to be reformed and how to eradicate corruption. And that makes me optimistic. Let's hope
0: that happens. On yes. That yes. Level, thank, well, thank you. you thank much. you very much, Ben. Thank you. Very really good. Yeah, good.